electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Hey, it's Kramer. My mission is simple, to make you money. Man Money is away today. But don't worry, I've got something special for you from my friends here at CNBC. Listen in. Good evening, I'm Scott Wapner. Jim Kramer is off this week, and this is On the Edge. Good to have you with us. Our top takes tonight. Big city backlash from cries of too much stimulus money to fears of people leaving for good. What is the future of the American metropolis? Tech stocks bounce back as SPAC mania takes over Wall Street. But is it a bubble that's about to pop and leave you holding the bag? The Disney comeback. Who deserves credit for the company's newfound magic? The new CEO or the hotshot hedge funder? And big tech under fire, the moves President Biden just made that should have the entire industry on edge. We begin tonight with this question. Is the American city dead? It's certainly hurting from the pain of the pandemic. But as the House prepares for a final vote on the $1.9 trillion stimulus package, some claim the bill gives way too much money to state and local governments. Here's Republican Senator Pat Toomey this morning on Squawk. This is an embarrassment and it's a disaster. Every, every big piece of it and most of the little ones. State and local government, for instance, $350 billion. You realize that in 2020, state and local governments in the aggregate collected more revenue than ever before. And that's not counting the $500 billion we sent them last year. Now we're told we have to send them yet another $350 billion. So what is the future of our city centers in COVID and beyond? Is there really a mass exodus taking place? Or is it all a myth? Welcome in Silicon Valley star investor and host of the All In podcast, Jason Calacanis, joining us tonight. It's good to see you. You heard the senator. These states and cities don't need any more money. Is he right? Well, I mean, San Francisco is a complete disaster right now. The, the number of people who've left uh, during COVID uh, is just nothing short of stunning. Uh, the number of restaurants that have shut down. And really, in my job as a, an early stage investor, what we're seeing is young people don't want to come here anymore and they don't think they need to come here anymore because of remote work and because people are funding companies over Zoom. And you know what? They're right. So I would say I follow where young, ambitious people want to go, both artists and entrepreneurs, and they do not want to come to San Francisco right now. It's too expensive. It's too dangerous. 
They want to go to Miami. They want to go to Austin. They want to go to New York. They want to go to LA, Nashville, anywhere but San Francisco. I think it's a five to 10 year slide down. Wow, that's a long period of time. You've been railing on this issue on Twitter and elsewhere on your podcast for sure. months. We're going to show some of the tweets right now. San Francisco devolution compounded with crime, cost and homelessness. The pandemic executives and high tax paying companies are leaving. You talk about home sales are at a 20 year peak in the city. Is it temporary or is it permanent? I think this is a five to 10 year story. Um, we had an incredible run up where young people wanted to be here and they wanted to start their companies here. Um, but that was, it turned out to be a false narrative. We all bought into this vision that in order to build an at scale company, the next Uber, Airbnb, Twitter, you needed to be here. You needed to be near the venture capitalists. You needed to be near the, you know, alumni of, of these great companies. And now because 100% of people have embraced remote work, uh, you simply do not need to be here. And the government is completely dysfunctional. And actually, San Francisco's government and, and a portion of the populace do not like the tech industry. They hate tech entrepreneurs. They hate you know people who have become ultra wealthy. And they're making it um, they're making it very clear that they don't want more tech people here. And places like Miami and Austin are the beneficiaries. So I think this will be a five to 10 year story. Um, I think it's got to bottom out and maybe artists start looking at, hey, the, the rents are so cheap in San Francisco, it's an opportunity. Uh, but I don't see it happening for at least another five to 10 years. And really, when I saw Jack um, at Twitter and Square say, we're not going back to the offices, and I saw Pinterest pay, you know, I think close to $100 million to cancel their new headquarters, that's when you realize that th this is not a temporary thing. This is a permanent thing. It depends, though. It depends where you look, because if you look outside of San Francisco, that's certainly not the case. I looked at a new Harris Correct. poll today. Correct. Seven in 10 people surveyed um, in Metro New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Houston, Phoenix and Philadelphia say they prefer to live in a big city. Only eight percent said they would live yeah. in the suburbs. Oh, those big cities that I mentioned to you, Jason, they have crime. They have poverty. They have high price of and high cost of living. So what's the difference? It was nowhere near, I think, the cost of living of San Francisco. We, we started to hit $4,000, $5,000 for a two-bedroom. Uh, and combined with the tax situation here and combined with the crime and the homelessness, which is much worse, I, I think it kind of broke people's backs. And I, I think if you look at low-tax states, Miami and Austin, uh, you have some of the super routers, you know, the, the real hubs of the network, whether it's Elon or Keith Raboy moving. And I don't think they're coming back. And young people are going to follow them and they're going to follow their example. I do think young people want to be in cities. I just don't think they want to be in this one. I just I just don't know. I wonder if some of it's being exaggerated. And I, I go back to the now it's famous op-ed that Jerry Seinfeld wrote in The New York Times, not only defending New York City, but speaking out about your home. Silicon Valley. So, among other things, energy, attitude and personality cannot be remoted through even the best fiber optic lines, he says. That's the whole reason many of us moved to New York in the first place. You ever wonder why Silicon Valley even exists? I've wondered why do these people all live and work in that location? They have all this insane technology. Why don't they just spread out wherever they want and connect with their devices? Because it doesn't work. People need and want to be together. It, there is something to that. Um, I think the disconnect is between young people and then people with families. I think people with families who are really grinding it out and not enjoying the lifestyle here 
the great pause of this pandemic gave them permission, uh, which they really never needed, but it did give them that pause and permission to try living in Tahoe or Salt Lake City or Austin. And so I, I think it does have to do with what stage in your life you're at. Um, but cities are great. And New York is unique in all the world amongst cities. That is a totally different class of city. That's like 10 cities put together. So New York's not going anywhere. It may get a little cheaper. There may be more storefronts that are empty. But really, San Francisco, I think, got way too expensive. Uh, and, and a lot of people now are looking at that $4,000 apartment and just saying, you know what, I'm starting a family. I'd rather pay a $1,500 or $2,500 mortgage than pay $4,000 for a two-bedroom. Well, for every Square or, or Twitter or, or you know, whoever you're, you're referencing, there is David Solomon of, of Goldman Sachs who, who tells the New York Times, I do think that businesses like ours, which is an innovative, collaborative apprenticeship culture, this is not ideal for us. It's not a new normal. It's an aberration that we're going to correct as soon as possible. I wonder how many other CEOs, tech or otherwise, even in places like San Francisco, the ones you reference, are thinking the same things and thoughts that Mr. Mm. Solomon is. I, I think that's an OK Boomer moment. I'll be totally honest. I, w- I had um, Toby from Shopify on the podcast yesterday, and you know he was very clear that he is going to embrace remote work forever. Uh, and, and you know even Mark Benioff, who built this incredible tower here, said he's going to let people pick what they want to do. And this is a prisoner's dilemma. If you know Mark Benioff and Toby at Shopify and, and Jack at Twitter and Square says, you can work wherever you want, then that kind of puts the heat on Reed Hastings, who said he wants to go back to the office with, you know, uh, Netflix or, you know, maybe, uh, you know, Zuckerberg at, at Facebook. And then if top talent says, you know what, I, I want to work wherever I want. Maybe I want to work in two cities every year. Maybe I want to spend the summers in one location like the CEO of the company does, because I'm sure the CEO of Goldman picks where he wants to live. I'm sure he's, you know, in Europe for two months and Aspen for a month and then in New York for nine months. That's the lifestyle that I think the next year down is going to embrace. Yeah. And so it's going to be a different world. Uh, and People are also, the, the other thing that this isn't taking into account is the leveling of salaries. In San Francisco, people were getting paid 30 or 40% more to live in this city to, to make up for the uh, cost of living. Now people uh, and CEOs are looking at their balance sheet and saying, okay, I can lower salaries going forward, you know, 30%. So I get an extra employee for every three. Oh, wait. And then my facilities costs were 15 or 20% of that. And I don't need to have as much facilities and I can just bring people together for retreats. It's very, very different. And so all due respect uh, to the boomers running Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or, you know, whatever's still in business. But it's very different in the tech industry. All right. So let's do this. Let, let's switch and talk about the markets. Right. We've got the Dow hitting a new record high today. Yum, got yum. The NASDAQ, NASDAQ uh, coming back in, in, in a big way. There are still conversations being had, though, Jason, about whether in one, we're in one gigantic bubble, right? We talk about SPACs every single day. What am I holding up here? A list of the SPAC filings that we got <laughs> yesterday alone. It fills the whole page. Bonkers. Bubble? Um, I, I would say when people are spending $2.5 million on a NFT tweet uh, <laughs> and Bitcoin is over $50,000, we're definitely in a bubble. Now, the question is, who comes out of the bubble and, and, and makes it to the other side? I can tell you who doesn't. You know, when people are investing in private companies like we do out here all day long, but they're valuing them like Nikola and Fisker at six or seven billion dollars before they have a product in market, 
that breaks my cardinal rule, which is anytime a company exceeds a $1 billion valuation before they have a product in market and before they have customers who love that product, it's a bubble or a fraud. Uh, and it's not going to end well for anybody. And we see this over and over again, whether it's Theranos or Magic Leap in Florida, all due respect to them. You know, th- this inventory of SPACs is not um, consistent with the public companies and the small number of pu- public companies we've had over the last decade. When you look at something like Netflix, even when it was nascent and growing or Spotify or, or, or Shopify, you found customers who were passionate about those products and couldn't live without them. And they couldn't shut up about them, including Tesla. But then you look at something like Fisker or Nikola or other speculative SPACs, you're starting to get into my industry, which is investing in companies that don't have products yet. Except when I do it, I invest at $5 million or $10 million valuations, not 6 or $7 billion. Okay. If you're investing in Fisker and Nikola at 6 or $7 billion, you're the sucker at the poker well, game. Well, now your bestie, Chamath, is going to be angry with you, right? Because he's the No, 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 no. His inventory is pretty good. I know, but he's the king. He is, but... But he's taken a beating of late in his own right as the market has pulled back. Sure. Listen, there's a lot of people who are looking to put money to work. You got a lot of new players at the poker table. And there are some SPACs that are real companies with customers and revenue. Chamath is investing in those companies and bringing them public. Then you have kind of people who you may never have heard of, or they were executives 30 years ago at some company, and they're bringing... Fisker, which went out of business two or three times and made the worst electric vehicle ever made, and they're going public well, and they're getting another swing at that. you're talking your Tesla book, though. You're, you know, uh, I don't own I any shares of Tesla. Tesla. I just own all the Teslas. I just own all the <laughs> yeah. Teslas. I don't have any shares. Yeah, but you're <laughs> hating on Fisker for a reason. I mean, because you love Elon Musk. Well, because it's a garbage product, and I think people are going to lose their money. Well, That's the reason. We'll no, see. honestly. Is this whole thing going to end badly? Too many SPACs chasing too few good deals? I think that a third of them are going to end very badly, yes. And I think a third of them will be, eh, and then a third of them are going to be wonderful risk-taking experiments. So if you're going to participate in SPACs, you should look at them as highly speculative and more like venture capital than public market investing in Airbnb, Uber, and Google. All right. Interesting so thoughts. be careful. Okay. Pump the brakes. Good words for wisdom. You, you stay with us. We'll be back with you. Jason's going to stay with Sounds us now. Sounds great. We are just getting started here on The Edge. Coming up, Panera founder Ron Shake made his bread at a public company until he took it private. The problems he sees in long-term investing right now. And a crypto bull argues why public companies should put some Bitcoin on their balance sheet. Plus, it's Disney's Investor Day. One big money activist pushed the mouse house to quit handing out the cheddar. And he's our main character when On the Edge returns on CNBC. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash business gold card. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. 
NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. Welcome back to On the Edge. I'm Scott Wapner. Kramer's off this week. Some big names in business making headlines today. Zoom CEO Eric Yuan transferring $6 billion worth of his own shares. That's 40% of his stake. The pandemic turned the brand into a household name, but shares are nearly half what they were at the end of last year. Jeff Bezos naming a new CEO to his $10 billion Earth Fund. Andrew Steer, who is currently head of environmental think tank World Resources Institute, will head up the organization fighting climate change. It comes, as Jeff Bezos said, he will step down as Amazon CEO to focus on other projects like the Washington Post and the Earth Fund. Finally, Bob Iger hosting his final Disney shareholder meeting before exiting the company at the end of December. Disney announcing it has now surpassed 100 million subscribers to Disney Plus, a company that was decimated by the pandemic, now setting new highs. Which brings us to tonight's main character, activist investor Daniel Loeb. Back in October, you may recall, Mr. Loeb called on Disney to make some big changes, doubling investment in streaming and suspending the dividend. A few weeks later... The company did heed some of his advice. The stock, it's surged ever since. Leslie Picker covers the hedge fund world for us, follows the money there, knows a lot about Daniel Loeb because you followed him for a long time, Leslie. Yeah, and he has a fascinating career, Scott, in an industry dominated by numbers, guys. Loeb stands out for his letters, letters to CEOs, letters to investors, and starting about six months ago, tweets. Never one to shy away from confrontation, his letters can be notoriously scathing. Over the last decade, Yahoo experienced this firsthand, as did Sony and Sotheby's. So did dozens of other companies. Loeb started his firm Third Point 25 years ago at the ripe age of 34. He named it for a surfing spot in Malibu. The investing bug hit him from an early age with a side gig playing the stock market in high school and college working in private equity afterward. But unlike many of his peers, he had a stint away from Wall Street, working for a reggae record label for a while. Ultimately, though, he set out on his own, starting Third Point and growing it to $16 billion in assets under management. He's a self-described philosopher and Ashtanga yoga enthusiast, uh, but Loeb's MO has really been these boardroom battles over shareholder value. A big exception the parent company of the happiest place on earth. Loeb invested during the second quarter and urged Disney to do away with the dividend and double down on direct-to-consumer streaming. Today, as you mentioned, we learned that Disney Plus had over 100 million paid subscribers. The dividend is currently suspended, although the company did say it intends to reinstate it at some point. Disney, though, up 75% since June, helping third point notch 20% gains in 2020. Isn't that just a storybook ending for, for that investment, Scott? Although they're still in it. Yeah. Yeah. He's had a knack of managing market turbulence a lot better <laughs> than some of his peers, too, Les. 
perhaps it's perhaps it's the uh, the surfing skills. He knows how to ride those waves a little better than than some others. Yeah, that was good. All right, Leslie Picker, thanks so much. Okay, so who deserves credit for Disney's big bounce back? The CEO or the activist? Let's welcome investor and entrepreneur Michelle Romanow. She's back with us tonight. Also, the former Panera CEO, Ron Shakey, has had his own run-in with activists over the years when Panera was public. It's good to have both of you with us tonight. Ron, I'll begin with you. I know how much you love activist investors, but how much credit does Daniel Loeb deserve in the case of Disney, Ron? Listen, there's some good activists and there's some bad activists. The question is, is this pervasive short-termism that we see in our capital markets good for GDP growth, good for the economy, good for America? Yeah, you can't argue with, with what Dan Loeb has done here, can you? I, I cannot argue with anything that happens in the short term. The question is, is this focus on the short term actually going to pay off for us in the medium and long term? Well, why do you assume so that it's a short term causes- thing, right? Why do you assume that it's a short term thing? I'm going to quote from his letter of October, if I could, Ron, and sure. you can react on the other side. Quote, the ability to drive subscriber growth, reduce churn and increase pricing present the opportunity to create tens of billions of dollars in incremental value for Disney shareholders in short order and hundreds of billions once the platform reaches larger scale. I showed a chart, Ron, of what the stock has done, not only yeah. from the day his investment was announced, but the day that the letter came out. And it's gone from left to way up on the right. Yes. And, and, and in any given situation, I'm not here to argue that activism is good or bad. There are bad management teams. There's times it's needed. The question we've got to ask is, is this pervasive short termism, which fuels activism, actually serving us? Do we really want uh, somebody coming out of New York who is sitting in some ivory tower in Manhattan maybe at home today or maybe in Antigua today, do we really want them telling the management of Disney how to run the company? The point is, that's why we hire the management team of Disney. Let them run the company, hold them to the long-term okay. results. All right. I mean, Michelle, you're an investor. It, Ron's yeah. picking on you guys. He's, you're, short, you're a short-timer, according to, uh, whoa, to whoa, him, whoa, a short-termer. Scott, I'm an investor also. It's a question of how do you create value? Well, I mean, it's hard to argue with the chart, right? The chart speaks louder than words, yes, Michelle. But the chart is in a short I, I, period of time. Know. Look at the growth of Disney over decades. That's a testament to Bob and his management. Sorry. Of course. Ahead, I think Michelle. in this case, Dan certainly was advocating for actually long-term growth, which is why this letter was so unique among most activist letters. You know, it actually said look, take that $3 billion dividend and invest a billion dollars of it into content. I mean, that is the opposite of being short-term focused. And then actually said, look, you guys have these blockbusters. I know there's a huge amount of temptation to charge $20 or 25 bucks for people to watch them, but actually build the all-you-can-eat method of you know, lowering that. And, and we saw that. I think when the letter was published, there was about 60 million Disney Plus subscribers. As you just saw, there were about 100 million. And so in this case, and, and I would agree Ron. Oftentimes, activists are very short-term, but in this case, you know, Dan Loeb was really advocating for long-term uh, shareholder value, and it looks like there was actually some cooperation with the management team, and they they implemented these things that I think long-term are going to be very good for Disney. Right. right. And, and, and ideas are good, as Michelle said. We're in, in fundamental agreement. Floating ideas, uh, pr- making proposals is good. When you tie that to extortionary actions that force boardrooms into fear, that force CEOs into fear for their, for, the, for their livelihood and for their organizations. When you focus on, on literally popping the stock in the next quarter as the end, as opposed to building companies of value, 
you inhibit the kinds of things we did at Panera over 25 years. Who, Ron, is most, who, who should get most of the credit for where Disney is today? Is it Bob Iger? Is it Bob Chapek? Uh, it, it's, it's clearly the management team at Disney. This didn't happen in the last quarter. This was built up over years and decades. And we have to understand that value is a byproduct. It's not something we can create. It's a byproduct of building a better competitive alternative, a better organization, a company that does a better job. Now, you can on the margin tactically adjust. You can push, you can pull back on the dividend. You can push up on, 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 on how you drive um, more and more subscribers. The reality is that companies aren't run quarter to quarter. They're run with long-term commitments, and that's what this team has done. You sound like you've been reading a lot of Larry Fink's letters over the years. Michelle, last word to you. Yeah, I mean, maybe in this case, actually, you know, the, the management team wanted this. and In many ways, they had an activist that was probably advocating for what they wanted internally, which is long-term growth. And I just think this is very different. I mean, I look at the, the 2013 Carl Icahn. He comes in and he buys a bunch of Apple and he's like, look, I, I believe in their future and their ability to build TVs and cars. And then, you know, just basically pushes for buybacks and dividends. And so I think in this case, it was one of the few situations where this went really well. I think for the most part, activists are very, very hard for management. Yeah, I mean, Apple did increase its buyback after that. All right, Ron, quick. Hey, Hey, you're not going to get tonight an argument. Michelle and I are in agreement. (laughs) All right, maybe next time. Maybe next time. You you know exactly what I was going for. All right, Ron Shake, we'll talk to you soon. Michelle, we'll see you in a bit. Up next, split decision. Should publicly traded companies be making risky bets on Bitcoin? Are they putting investors at risk? We'll be joined by crypto expert Anthony Pompliano. Pomp joins us next. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility visibility at indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast, indeed.com slash mad money terms and conditions apply need to hire. You need indeed. Another day, another jump in Bitcoin. There's the chart right there. Now nearing 55,000, continuing its big surge this year. Square is also up 11% today. The cryptocurrency in the news lately as much for its soaring price as its big name backers, which brings us to tonight's split decision. Publicly traded companies from Tesla to Square have increased their exposure, but is it a good use of corporate capital? Does it bring too much risk for investors? Anthony Pompliano with us now, the investor and Bitcoin enthusiast. I'm looking on Twitter, too. And you guys, you and Calacanis are already going at it on Twitter. So I'm bringing Calacanis back in, too. And we're going to get it on um, right now. Anthony, I'm starting with you, Pomp. What's the deal? Why are companies doing this? 
Listen, Bitcoin is the apex predator of financial markets. You've got digital sound money that's grown at a compound annual growth rate of 200% for a decade. And if you're sitting there and you manage a treasury, you've got cash in your balance sheet, you tell me where else you're going to put it where you can get that type of growth. 200% compound annual growth rate for a decade. There's nowhere else for them to put it. We're printing an unprecedented amount of money. And so they're looking for a safe haven. And Bitcoin is that apex predator that everyone is concluding is the answer. Well, it sounds great. Then, Calacanis, why do you say on Twitter, hey, imaginary money man, when, when I said that you guys were both going to be here? Is that what Bitcoin is? Well, obviously, it's imaginary money. Um, but all, and, and to a certain extent, all money is imaginary, except the U.S. dollar has the world's greatest army and economy behind it. So there, there are some things to the American dollar that have a slight advantage in the, the military bases we've placed around the world for the last 200 years and the fact that we own the world's greatest companies. I, I do think it's a very real technology that's combined with massive market manipulation, speculation. Uh, and so for somebody like Pomp, who's got, I think, Pomp, correct me if I'm wrong, you have 90% of your net worth in Bitcoin. This is a religion, um, and, and it's a bit crazy. Uh, for a company to have some of their corporate treasury in cryptocurrency isn't crazy. Um, I would keep it at a small amount. I would be very careful that you don't need that. So I wouldn't put 100% or 90% of your treasury like Pomp has done. Uh, but Pomp's a, what, you're a 30-year-old guy with uh, no kids <laughs> and, and you don't have to, you know, uh, worry about it. So just just be very careful out there, folks, because there is a, a decent chance that another technology will emerge that is better uh, than Bitcoin. And when that happens, you could see just as easily as people poured speculative money into cryptocurrency and Bitcoin specifically, you can see the flows go out of it. So just be careful that, you know, this very real technology, which is highly manipulated and highly speculative, you don't become the person left holding the bag. Go ahead, Pomp. I mean, I'm getting out of the way. I know you want to get in. Listen, ahead, Pomp. listen, it's hysterical that Jace is talking about manipulated markets. We have a Federal Reserve and elected officials who have outlawed bear markets. If you're in the stock market and the market starts to correct, they step in and they just pump liquidity into the market. This is insane. If you want to talk about a manipulated market, let's talk about the stock market. We saw China today started to uh, enter into their market as well. We can't have markets that aren't allowed to correct. And so what we're watching is investors are racing to find an asset where they can go that is an unmanipulated, transparent, programmatic and Bitcoin <laughs> and Bitcoin, Bitcoin serves that purpose, right? Bitcoin's well, not manipulated, right? The monetary policy of Bitcoin is as transparent and programmatic as they come. I can tell you exactly how much Bitcoin. Nobody can tell me how many dollars were printed today, how many dollars were taken out of circulation. Nobody knows. The system isn't transparent. Okay. It's completely we're just watching the Federal Reserve and elected officials pump liquidity into a market and they have outlawed bear markets. That's not how markets are supposed to work. What Bitcoin provides is a transparent, programmatic monetary policy that no one in the world controls. And investors have had enough, and they are going to seek refuge in something that cannot be changed by at the whim of a government, an organization, or an individual. And that's why Bitcoin's winning. Why is it manipulated, Jason? I mean, it just historically has been because it's anonymous, and we don't even know who owns the bulk of these Bitcoins. And it's completely possible that governments will make a very reasonable decision to curtail the usage of it and, and create their own. So when the U.S. dollar becomes a cryptocurrency, it's, it's quite possible that people will not want to be in this one. At any point in time, China could just decide that, hey, 
just like, you know, Jack Ma is not allowed to run Ant Financial anymore or we're just going to make him disappear potentially for some period of time. China could just say, yeah, we're not going to do this anymore. No more cryptocurrency in our country. You have to use the renminbi cryptocurrency. So there is just a ton of risk factors. I know a lot of young people really love this technology. It is a miracle of technology that nobody controls this and it hasn't been hacked. I am in awe of it on a technological basis. I own a large amount of it because my wife was smart enough to buy it. So we've profited greatly from it having bought it when it was in you know the two-digit range. See That being said, be careful, people. This is the height of speculation. And, and just be very careful because it could be replaced by another technology. And you know what Pomp is talking about here in, in terms of you know, the stock market is this you know, horrible thing. You just had a previous segment talking about the amazing companies that make up the stock market like Disney. And they have 100 million people who are now paying for Disney Plus, which did not exist a year ago. Disney Plus, They're all by down. the way, is They're all down. The, uh, stop talking about up or down in the day. Look at the arc of history. Disney will be here in 100 years. We don't know that Bitcoin will be here in 10 years. Be very careful, but, Pomp, but with your Disney, money. This is advice from me to you, Pomp. Take half your money out of Bitcoin and put it in Disney and Google and Amazon, which will guarantee to be here in 10 years. You have lost your mind if you think that those companies are farcical. People are spending much more time consuming and using the products that Google and Disney make than Bitcoin, which has zero use case other than speculation in a store of money. I'm telling you this because I care about you, Pomp. Put some of your money, please. That you've made from Bitcoin in Disney. Promise me you'll put 10% of it in. That's all I'm asking you to do. Jason, if you, denominate the stock mar- if you denominate the stock market in gold, it's down. If you denominate the stock market in Bitcoin, it's down. These assets are only going up in value because the dollar is being devalued. If you denominate in hard assets, all of these assets are down. The apex predator of financial markets, stocks, bonds, what? real it's estate, just precious metals. buzzword. Apex predator. It's You're just making down. up buzzwords. You're just making up buzzwords. What, what has outperformed Disney. Bitcoin for a decade? How how long does it have to go and outperform all these assets? How long does every you, asset you, have to fall I would in not value count. compared to Bitcoin until you capitulate? Uh, I own it for a reason. I do think that there is some value here. It is not something any reasonable person should put 90% of their okay, money see, in. You're deluded, Pomp. Now, I thought when Jason was saying that it's manipulated – I thought he was referring to the fact that Musk and Dorsey and these others are big proponents of Bitcoin, and then they're buying it for their companies and talking about it, which drives the price up after they've invested their corporate dollars in it. Isn't there something wrong, Pomp, with that picture? That's what happens in the stock market every day, whether it's analysts, CEOs, uh, people who come on this show, everything, right? Everybody is talking their book. Of course, that's what's going to happen. I think what we're watching, though, and Jason mentioned it, and I I think we actually agree on this, right, is that corporations are waking up to the fact that maybe they shouldn't go put 80, 90 percent of their corporate treasury into Bitcoin, but they are going to put some percentage financial institutions. They're not going to go tomorrow and abandon what's got them to be these large financial institutions, but they are going to start to play in this space. And so I think that it's just naturally you're going from a contrarian trade or an idea to a consensus trade or idea in corporate boardrooms and on Wall Street. And that's where you're seeing these massive capital inflows because they just have a lot of money, right? They're just big organizations with a lot of money. And so naturally when that flows in, 
Bitcoin's only a trillion dollar asset. There's lots of volatility when that money, money flows in. And I think that's where you're seeing these big price movements. What about the, the question that I just asked Pomp, Jason? I mean, is that is that cool um, that Musk and Dorsey no, I, are doing that? Are you, are you, are you cool with that? They're, the, yeah, I'm totally cool with it. It's They're buying small amounts of it. If it's under 10% of their corporate treasuries, which are growing, I think it's a fine hedge. I think actually that's a smart way to use it is as a hedge, because if it does go up, you could have this amazing amount of capital to work with. And it has had a spectacular run. We all know that. That's a run that's probably going to level off, as we all know as well, because it was parabolic at the beginning when it was one cent or a fraction of a cent. Um, but I, I do think there is something to having a small amount of it. I would encourage anybody who's interested in cryptocurrency to maybe have 1% or 2% of their net worth in it. It's, it's a fine bet to make. If it goes 10x or 20x, it could be material. And if you lose it, it doesn't matter. Uh, but certainly when you start to get to pomp levels of insanity, pomp, are you at 90% <laughs> net worth in this? Pomp, tell everybody truthfully. What is your net You told me on my well, podcast 90% at one point. I, I, you, to, to be clear, you taken some chips? a little bit. No, I've not sold any Bitcoin. I have no plan to sell Bitcoin. Wait, is 90% of your net worth in Bitcoin? Be honest. Over 95%. Oh, my Lord. Did you not? How, how much of your net worth, Jason, how, how much of your net worth you? was in Uber? How much of your well, net worth was, was in Uber when it went public? It, it, it was up in that range. I will tell you that. But I cleared a little <laughs> bit of the position and I bought a house. I highly recommend buying a house or maybe some index funds. We are in the sacred time slot of Mr. Jim Cramer. Are you diversified? No. Get diversified, Pop. Please. We are in the sacred space of Mr. Jim Cramer. You must be diversified. And by the way, on the Disney tip, there is one person responsible for Disney's success, and that's John Favreau, who created The Mandalorian, which is responsible for 95% of the success of Disney Plus, come at me. All right. I was going to say, if, if Kramer was here and he has written this, he wants you to get rich, but he wants you to get rich carefully. He'd be the first one to tell you that. Pomp, we're going to do this again. I can guarantee that. <laughs> I it's love good Pomp. to see you. I love Anthony him. Pompliano. Jason's not going He's anywhere. Best. He's sticking around. Here's what's still ahead. Coming up, did someone call the Trustbusters? Why two of President Biden's appointments may signal a big tech showdown. Plus, a new report. Apple is making virtual reality goggles. Facebook augmenting its efforts. Who's got the cutting edge in this race? And what do you need to know before the bell rings Wednesday? It's tomorrow's edge today when we return on CNBC. Welcome back to On the Edge. Stocks rallying today. The Nasdaq was the big winner, closing up more than 3%. The big tech names that got hit hardest yesterday, bouncing back big time today, including Tesla, which was up nearly 20% in its own right. Tech companies are facing, though, a swirl of regulatory pressures, and two new hires in the Biden administration could signal an even tougher road ahead. The administration reportedly in the late stages of hiring Lena Khan, a Columbia law professor at the FTC. This follows Tim Wu, an outspoken tech critic, joining the National Economic Council. That's two aggressive antitrust voices in power positions now. Michelle Romanow, Jason Calacanis back with us. All right, Michelle, I turn to you first. How worried should big tech be tonight? You know, I think what we're missing here is that, you know, all these big tech companies play on data 
And if we break up our American tech companies, the Chinese are going to have far more powerful companies than the Americans are. And so really, we talk about this as it being a national issue. But I think that it's more important who's going to win international markets. Like you look at Tencent, Baidu, Alibaba, they're all going to be more powerful than Facebook, Google and Amazon if we allow our companies to be broken up. And so I think that's really interesting to play because generally in these situations, you know, when companies get too big and too powerful, this isn't a good thing, right? When Standard Oil was broken up and, you know, truly the Rockefeller era, that actually was good for innovation. I think in this game, though, we're not looking at that second order effects of do we really want the Chinese companies in the space to be the most powerful? So I think we're probably not talking about that nearly enough. I don't know, Jason, you could take a look at these hires and say, okay, something's up, right? And enough talk. Now there's actually action in the way of bodies and seats who may have something to say about this now. Yeah, I, I think um, our, our other guest nailed it. We, we are in an existential um, war with China um, that the playing field is capitalism. And if we, we cannot ankle our big technology companies while they pick the winners, they literally pick the winners there and they are um, going to be going, they're going to be going international. And we're going to have to put our foot down and just say no more TikTok in America like India did. And just say, unless there's reciprocity and we have access to your consumers, you do not have access to our consumers anymore. And I, I think China's, you know, it's like one of the few things that I appreciated about Trump, not starting wars and then, you know, taking a stronger approach with China. And I think a lot of this is performative um, on the Democratic side. I think it's very populist to say we have to break up big tech. Uh, but if you actually look at consumer harm, you know, each of these companies is different. But all that's happened with Amazon is that consumers have benefited. Prices have gotten lower. The only company I really can look at and say, you know, there's arguably consumer harm here would be Facebook, right? And, and that's because of privacy violations. And I think you can handle that with sanctioning them for the third time. I mean, they've gotten some of the largest fines yeah, well, in the history. You make a good point. Obviously, the, obviously, that doesn't work, right? I'm sure there's somebody sitting at home who says, OK, I get it. These, these, both of these guests, are, they're talking their books. They're, this is their world, right? Uh, but something needs to be done because the companies clearly can't police themselves. You slap them on well, the wrist like you just referenced Facebook I, I, getting smacked a couple of times. They're speeding. T- yeah, you're right. They're speeding tickets. But it, talking my own book would be break them up so the younger companies I invest in would have an easier time coming up. So so I'm, I kind of have um, a, a stake in both sides of this discussion. What I think has to happen is the companies need to police themselves. Apple has done a wonderful job of making their products interoperable and they could do a little bit better. So they should just allow a third party app store, just like Amazon allows third party sellers. Facebook's done a terrible job. They could solve the whole problem by allowing people to pay 10 bucks a month to use the Facebook suite of products and not have any data tracked. So a lot of the uh, founders and CEOs of the companies in Silicon Valley have uh, misbehaved. And candidly, they need to get to, you know, a place where they can regulate themselves and not poke the tiger and just, you know, allow customers to have their privacy. That, that's really the solution here. We don't need to break Jason, them up. They need to behave better. They, I would argue that that's actually happening right now. I mean, that is you I agree, know, this whole I agree. iOS 14 with Apple. I mean, they basically said, 
customer is going to get their choice. You have your phone, you're going to get to choose whether you, you put your data in the Facebook pixel or not. And so I actually think that's a that's a fairly good sign. It will give certain ways to all these secondary ad platforms. I mean, we see that like ClearBank's backed 4,000 different companies and we can see that, you know, spend is moving from Facebook and Google into, you know, Pinterest, into Snapchat, into, um, you know, Spotify and all these other kind of tier two platforms. But, you know, it was, it was a good point, Scott, that you think we're speaking up for ourselves. I mean, I, I'm speaking up for the little guy. And I think there's probably, you know, less of a shot of, of some of our early startups getting bought by big tech companies. But I think a way bigger play here is where America wants to sit in owning these tech companies. Because we can do this thing where we do reciprocity agreements and we can say, okay, well, if TikTok's allowed here, this is allowed here. But who's going to win the rest of the world? I think America wants to win Africa and the Middle East and Europe uh, with our tech companies versus those being run by the Chinese. I, I hear you. I mean, your small tech companies want to be sold to big tech companies. So if they can't do those kinds of deals, that's going to hurt. It's been great. We'll talk to you guys again soon. Michelle, thank you. Jason Calacanis, thanks for your extended My amount pleasure. of time tonight. We'll catch you guys down the road for sure. After the break, we've been hearing for a while that VR is the next big thing. Will Apple be the company that finally cracks that code? On the Edge is back after this. Welcome back to On the Edge, about 10 minutes or so away from the news with Shepard Smith tonight. Shep, what do you got coming up? Scott, lots ahead. Uh, tonight, we're going to start out with it seems like everybody now wants the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Demand is surging for this single shot, while medical professionals urge us all to take whatever's available once we're eligible. Tonight, how they're dealing with all the shortages. Plus, the Boston Marathon bombers rotting in prison but now he has a list of demands for the incoming attorney general, why he's claiming his constitutional rights are being violated. And the palace responds to the Meghan and Harry Oprah interview, what they're saying and how they're handling the accusations of racism. Coming up, top of the hour on CNBC, the news just minutes away. We'll see you in about six minutes. Look forward to that, Shep. Thank you very much. Coming up, Apple and Facebook's plans for virtual reality. Mark Zuckerberg now says the technology could help combat climate change. Cutting Edge is coming up next. Welcome back to On the Edge, the next big thing or the next big flop. Each night, we'll clue you into the companies and ideas that are on the cutting edge of business. Tonight, put on your headsets and step into the not-so-distant future of virtual and augmented reality. The top Apple watcher reporting the iPhone maker could be launching its own ARVR hardware next year, and it's not just Apple. Mark Zuckerberg told the information he believes people will use smart glasses to teleport into other people's homes and businesses, reducing emissions and fighting climate change. Here to break all that down is Jessica Lesson, the founder and editor-in-chief of The Information. It's nice to see you. Thanks for being with us. So, so the Google Glasses sounds like it was just about a decade too soon, I guess. You know, it, I agreed. It's all about timing in this business. And, you know, whatever you think of AR and VR, the time is coming that Apple and Facebook and many others are really getting ready for their first products, um, which Mark Zuckerberg talked to us about. Um, and we released the podcast and interview yesterday. Um, so it's coming, whether or not people think it's crazy. All right. Well, it's a big scoop getting Zuck. So what did he tell you guys? What's his what's his big plan? <laughs> 
Yeah, a couple of takeaways. I mean, first and foremost, um, how bullish he is. He's using this technology. He sees us, uh, you know, forget Zoom, teleporting to meetings. Um, you know, he believes uh, in big societal implications. You mentioned climate change, um, but this is a huge area of focus for Facebook. And I think many people still think of it as a side project, even after they bought Oculus many years ago. But I think what was very clear from the interview is how serious they are about development, first and foremost, because of something he said, which is that he views it as kind of essential for controlling their own platform. If you think about the current ruling platform, mobile, Facebook is beholden to Apple and Google. It's just an app on their hardware. And I think Zuckerberg really wants to change that and sees VR and AR as the way. Who's, who's he more worried about, do you think? Apple or Google or both equally? Apple, Apple, Apple. I think throughout our interview, um, he was very clear um, about how he's taking a different approach from Apple. He talked many times about not believing in expensive hardware but instead wanting to make it accessible. Um, at the information we reported a couple weeks ago that you know Apple is getting ready to debut its first mixed reality device as soon as next year, that's a combination of AR and VR. And so they're really in the market working on this. And we actually have a rendering of, of that device, what it could look like, a possible version over at the information. And um, he sees Apple ramping up and that's who he's concerned about. He yeah. actually, in the interview, compared Facebook's approach to Google. So I think he wants to be the Android um, to Apple's iOS. Yeah, he's probably worried a little bit about everybody. It's a great scoop. Thanks for being with us, Jessica. We'll talk to you soon. Jessica Lesson of The Information, that big scoop with Mark Zuckerberg. Of course, they're talking about there. Let's uh, talk about get you on the edge uh, tonight for tomorrow. The markets. Let's get a quick look at how we finished today. We said the Dow hit a new record high today. NASDAQ really blasted off today. You could see investors pouring back there up almost 500 points. We'll be back with you tomorrow night at 6 p.m. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.